So we're uh, continuing our study of the minor prophets, and uh, as, as we've looked at different ones, you know, outside of Jonah, which is, is kind of an understandable story, a lot of the prophets and a lot of the passages in the prophets have, have, are a bit difficult to understand. Uh, Haggai chapter 1 is not that. Uh, Haggai chapter 1 especially is very straightforward. Uh, the sections of this book uh, kind of are broken up nicely by a timeline. Uh, it begins with the word of the Lord uh, came by the hand of Haggai uh, in um, the sixth month of the second year of Darius. Then uh, in chapter 2 was the seventh month and then the ninth month. Basically three different times uh, that the word of the Lord comes uh, to these people. And it's in the second year of Darius the king, and this is Darius the Great, the king of Persia. Uh, there's another Darius uh, hanging around, but uh, this uh, for biblical history, he is the king of Persia during the books of Ezra, Haggai, and Zechariah. Okay, and so those are kind of corollary here. And his rule starting in, started in 522 BC, okay, about 500 years before Christ. And uh, so this, if this comes in the second year of his reign, Haggai was written in 520 BC. A lot of times we can't date them uh, definitively where the prophet spoke or, or uh, wrote, but this one we can. And remember that Israel was carried off into exile by Babylon, and then uh, they returned in the year 538 B.C., or at least that was the beginning of the return. So here we are, 520, it's about 18 years after the first people returned back to Jerusalem, okay? Just remember that as we read through this. And as I've said before, the heart motives of Israel uh, during the time of the prophets are very similar to the heart motives of people in the United States today, even God's people in the U.S., right? Maybe the question is, where is your ultimate priority? In in a sense, what is first in your life? Is it the well-being of you and your family, or is it God's glory? As we're going to see here in Haggai, uh, those things don't have to be in competition, but we can easily elevate our well-being to first place uh, in place of God's glory being what we live for. So would you stand as we uh, just hear the word of the Lord as it came to Haggai the prophet uh, in the second year of uh, the reign of Darius. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your, in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, And Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent them, and the people feared the Lord. And then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Let's pray. God, we ask that you, by your Spirit, would, uh, would reveal yourself to us. God, by your Spirit, would you help us to see truly what's going on in our heart and our mind. God, where have we replaced your glory with our own, or your glory with our own well-being? Uh, Father, I pray that you would reveal and expose those things today. But Father, as we maybe feel those things, help us to run to the table of grace. That even when we go our own way and pursue our own interest, the glory of the gospel is that you poured out your wrath on Jesus so that we might be brought near as friends and as sons and daughters of the King. So Father, be with us now. Reveal your truth for us and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So I switched back recently to an iPhone, uh, really regretting that decision, so I can't wait till I can go back to Android. Anyway, but iPhone sends you this little notification each week, and uh, unless you've turned it off, of how much you've used your iPhone that week, right? And uh, you've used your iPhone, and it gives you an average of how much per day, and it is amazing. It is amazing how quickly all those little checks or those little, you know, stop-offs on your phone add up to hours in a day, isn't it right? You know, and you think about it, there's only 24 hours a day, and if all those little things add up, you're like, wow, I spent a lot of my time on this little device. And then you're like, that's only one thing in my life. Then you think of TV and sports and Netflix, and there's a lot of things to spend our time on. But, but... You know, where do you spend your time is an important question, but even deeper question is why do you spend your time there? Do we value things more so than the things of the Lord? Now, obviously, you can be on your iPhone and reading your Bible app, 
Okay, so not everything you do on your iPhone is, uh, is that terrible. And so, uh, you know, we can, it's not all or nothing. It's not black or white. It's not never use an iPhone or, or, or love the Lord. It's not, that's a false dichotomy. But where is your motives and where are my motives, my priorities and yours, when we start to look at the things that we do in life? And as you just heard the, the, the word of the Lord come to the people uh, from, uh, from Haggai, you, you heard this phrase twice, and it really is a call, not this phrase, but it's a call for us to examine our heart's desires, okay? What's going on in your heart? Why do you pursue the things you do? And in Haggai, the word came, and it was, consider your ways, Consider those things. And so, you know, consider, obviously, to think carefully about something. But there, this phrase, consider your ways, is a fascinating phrase in the Hebrew. Uh, you know, your ways is, you know, your conduct, your manner of life. The, uh, but, it's, but it really, uh, oftentimes, is the word road or journey or direction. And so now... You know, uh, the word of the Lord coming from Haggai is not saying, you know, hey, where are you walking? Like, what, you know, what direction on the map? You know, so when he's talking about the road or the journey or, or your direction, it's kind of consider your course of life. You know, the ways in which you live is what is being uh, asked of us here. But that word for consider is actually two words in the Hebrew. Uh, and, um, and it's rightly translated to consider. Uh, and, but, the, but the two words together kind of get us to that place. Uh, and it's, uh, the first word is to place something, like to arrange something or to set something somewhere. Uh, and, you know, to set something in its rightful place, okay? But then the second word is the word for heart or the core or the, or the middle of yourself, um, not physically, uh, the middle, but like what's going on in here. So it's kind of like set things in their rightful place at the core of who you are. And, and so it's not just consider, think about, but it is maybe you need to reorient. Maybe you need to examine and rightly place things where they need to be in terms of where your heart's desires are. Where are your heart's desires in, the, in terms of the course of your life? You know, setting something in its proper place. And so when, uh, when, when Haggai speaks to the people of Israel, uh, he is asking them to consider their ways. And we're going to just look at, you know, four different uh, ways in which that breaks down. The first one is their lifestyle, right? And so consider your ways in the way that you live. So right in the middle of verse 9 is this phrase that seems to depict not only their life, but modern life. You know, I guess it describes the heart motive of ancient life and of modern life. Maybe it's the human condition more than something cultural. Here's, here it is. At second half of verse 9. Because my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Man, that sounds a lot like modern America, Right? busies himself. It's to run after something. Uh, to dart after is actually in the, in, the, in the lexicon. To chase after something. To hurry after it. Yeah, that, that sounds about right. You know, the, the running around frantically for our own stuff and our own well-being. 
Does that describe your life at all? Uh, Haggai is saying, through, uh, the word of the Lord is saying through the prophet, consider your ways. Examine those things. See what's in your heart. Does anything need to reorient in the course and the direction of your life? Does this depict and describe you in any way? You know, it's not all or nothing, right? You know, there are times when, man, I'm not busying myself with my, you know, but then there's times where I've got this mixed up version of mine and and my glory and God's glory. And I don't think it's always just yes or no. In what ways do we need to consider those things? So there's, there's the aspect of lifestyle, but then, there's, uh, then it goes beyond that to the idea of priorities. Uh, you know, that, that hard work and even fast-paced activity is not necessarily a problem, okay? So, but, but notice the priority that God is exposing and revealing among his people, where God says, my house is in ruins while you run after your own house, okay? It's not that you actually care about your house. It's that, well, mine is sitting in ruins and you are chasing after your things. It's repeated again in verse 4. You know, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses— basically panels of cedar in that day, while this house, the house of the Lord, lies in ruins. Same question. You know, what are you running after? Basically, because what you run after shows what you deem important. That's sobering. You know, God's not saying that we shouldn't care about our own houses. There's tons of places in the scriptures that say that we ought to care about our families and their well-being. Okay, God's not creating this dichotomy between him and your family. However, when your stuff is all you care about, and God's stuff lies in ruins, your priorities are revealed and exposed. That's what God's speaking to this morning. Because what's interesting with these people is when they returned in 538 B.C., 18 years prior, when they returned, guess what they started to do? They started to rebuild the temple. So they started off doing exactly what God is now calling them to do. And then soon that just evaporated. That quickly stopped and they started to pursue their own houses and build their own houses. Isn't that interesting, right? You know, verse 2 uh, thus says the Lord of hosts. And if you're wondering what that phrase, the Lord of hosts, means, the word host is a military term, it's like an army. So the Lord of the heavenly army. This is not like, you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This is, you know, this is the Lord who rules over all things and will subdue all things under his feet. The Lord of hosts says this. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Where are your priorities? Where are my priorities? Because the Lord is speaking to the priorities of his people here in chapter 1. Maybe another way of saying it, is your stuff in competition with God's glory? And, you know, we asked it earlier, where do you spend your time? Not that that's an automatic answer, but we tend to do what we value, right? Nobody really has to tell me to think about golf. I love it, right? You know, nobody has to tell me to think about my kids, right? 
Uh, you know, th- these things just kind of fall out. Why? Because, you know, you do what you value. You know, what are you concerned about? What are you working towards? So the question of, you know, when's the last time that the glory of God entered your thinking when making a big decision for your family? You know, not, not the little stuff like where we're going to eat, but like the big decisions of life. When has the glory of God entered into that conversation in your thought process? Where do we want our kids to go to school? Where do we want to live? What kind of house does God want us in? What does God want our career to look like? Does, does God's glory enter that conversation? Because if it's not, guess what? Your priorities might be off. And you might be, uh, need to do what, what Haggai says here, consider your ways and examine your heart's desires. Because then, so our, our lifestyle, we busy ourselves with our own stuff. Then there's the priorities. What do we value and what do we do? Then there's the motives behind that. So if priorities are things that you deem important, then motives are the reason that you do something or the reason you deem something important. So it kind of gets a little deeper. Not what you're doing, but why are you doing it is, is the question of motives, you know. Priorities. Their house is more important to them than God's house. The motives ask the question, why? Why is their stuff more important than God's? It's an interesting that that, that really becomes the crux of the matter, you know, uh, there's this sense of personal comfort, personal advancement, personal well-being. What do they do in verse 6? It's not on the screen, but they, they sow, meaning like, like sowing and reaping. They sow, they eat, they drink, they clothe themselves, and they earn wages. None of those are bad. But when you don't see these efforts made for the glory of God, it reveals something in our heart. You know, there's a reason in your heart and in my heart why you pursue your stuff more than God's glory. There's something deeper than just doing it. There's something in our heart. Maybe that the pursuit of your own advancement, your own comfort, is of greater value to you than the pursuit of God's glory. Mine is more important than God's. And if you think about it, what's the first commandment of the Ten Commandments that God gave his people in Exodus chapter 20? You shall have no other gods before me. Isn't that interesting? What's he talking about? He's talking about anything that takes him from the throne of your life, not as if you could, but you, that you think you do. Remove him from the throne of your life. It could be worshiping another god, and there were tons of them. Baal, Molech, all sorts of those in, in that day. Or it could be something that you're worshiping, like your own advancement, your own comfort, your own well-being, your own status, your own wealth, your success, your achievement, your pleasure. What takes God off the throne of your life in you put something else in its place. Those motives and our priorities are revealed. But what else is is revealed here is their functional beliefs. So uh, because of their priorities and because of what they were pursuing, God frustrates their efforts. Okay? Now, this is called grace, but it certainly doesn't feel like grace. 
Because think about it. If they are misplaced in their priorities and their motives and what they're chasing after, we think God, for him to be loving, he would give us the fruit of our labors. But if they're misplaced in what they're pursuing, love would be God to not give them what they're chasing after. Right? We think, oh, we're so frustrated. The results aren't there. God must be against me. Actually, that might be him being for you. Here's why. What happens in verse 6? You have sown much, yet you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never ever feel. You clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. He who earns wages does so, but puts them in a bag with holes, meaning it just falls right out. Okay? Do you hear what God's doing there? He's frustrating the results of what they're chasing after. Verse 9, you looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I, God, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, blew it away. Verse 10 and 11, therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew. This is an agrarian culture, so what they grow matters. Water is essential to that. I've withheld the dew. The earth has withheld its produce. I have called for a drought on the land and the hills and on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. What are they doing? They're chasing after their stuff, and God is frustrating the results of that. At times, that says, wait, wait a second, but that is God's grace because he's not giving them the mismotive of their heart. He's frustrating it so as to open their eyes. So don't take all difficulty in your life as something bad. God might be using difficulty in your life for you to consider your ways and examine your heart's desires. It's really interesting. What did they do? A lot like what we do, they worked harder, right? God was trying to help them uh, see where really life was found, and all they did was go further and further into self-reliance. If I only work harder, then life will work itself out. But then they moved from there. So if that's kind of the, the exposing of the hard attitude, right? And, and Haggai is saying, consider your ways, consider your motives, your priorities, your lifestyle, functional beliefs, basically what you really are trusting in rather than the living God. Ultimately, we find ourselves responding in faith, that we respond in faith to the word of the Lord. It's not just, hey, go get your act straight. It is God does a work, and then we get to respond to it. That's the beauty of the gospel, here are, the, here are the gospel patterns that fall out in this passage. So if you're sitting here like, uh, lifestyle, check. Uh, prior, misaligned priorities, check. You know, misaligned motives, check. Functional beliefs as if God's not God, check. And you're like, now what do I do? Well, here's the gospel. The gospel is not get your act together. The gospel is hear the grace of God. And then that starts to change how we begin to live. Verse 12. Okay, Zerubbabel, Joshua, Remnant. Got it? Okay, uh, what did they do? It's only repeated like four or five times in this chapter. But they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet. And the Lord their God, had sent, as the Lord God had sent him, uh, and the people feared the Lord. 
So the word comes, the word challenges, we see what is misaligned, we consider our ways, we're humbled before the Lord, and then we begin to obey, but we also fear the Lord. Both are responses of faith because God speaks and we respond. God knows because we don't. God is king and we are not. God's glory, not my own. And so when they see these things, what do they do? Verse 14, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel. Later in that verse, uh, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people were stirred, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. They basically did what the Lord was calling them to. They saw those things, they, they, they uh, acted in faith, they obeyed the word of the Lord, they, they feared the Lord. It's an act of faith. Think about it. They're going to leave working on their stuff to come work on the house of the Lord. If I take time away from my work, I'm going to have less, right? God says, you can't outgive me. In Malachi, he actually says, test me. Kind of like, try me. (laughs) You know, the one who owns a cattle on a thousand hills, you cannot outwork him. It's all his. It's all at his discretions. Do you think that God can't multiply the fruit of your labors? It's a common experience of uh, boards of Christian organizations. So uh, one was Covenant Seminary where I went for school. Or for school. Um, they would have three-day board meetings, like twice a year. And so everybody would come in, the board members would come in, and, and they would do business for three days and all this stuff, and they would never get any of the, all their stuff accomplished. And they did this for years. And then they said, you know what, something is misaligned and something is off. And so instead of doing business for three days, they came together and they had an entire day and a half of prayer before the Lord. And then in the remaining day and a half, they got everything accomplished that they needed to accomplish. Whereas for three days, in years prior, they didn't get it all done. Do we not think God can multiply our efforts and multiply their effectiveness and multiply the, the, the result of your sales calls and, and even our parenting and our pursuits of different things? Do we think God can't do that? Because God is saying, Trust me. Trust me with results. God's saying, I'm the one that makes it rain. I'm the one that causes stocks to go up and down. I'm the one that produces successful outcomes. So what do we need to do? We need to sow seed in trust of God, and we reap as we wait and watch for him to come. So here's the amazing thing is when God stirs our spirit, here's the promise of the gospel. Then Haggai, the message of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, and he says, I am with you, declares the Lord. What a promise. To people that have pursued their own gain and left his house in ruins, God says, I'm with you. It's the pattern of the gospel. His assurance of his presence drives our action. We love because he first loved us. 
So when God says, I'm with you, it's a pledge for these people. It's also a pledge for us and a future promise. Because what is the name that was to be given to Jesus? Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. So when God declares over the people from the, from the prophet Haggai, I am with you, and then he says when, the word, when God came in the flesh, who, what's his name? He will be called Emmanuel because it is God with us. It's the promise of the gospel that begins to heal our hearts. Do you know him? He's calling us to consider our ways. Let's pray. Father, uh, by your word and by your spirit, would you do amazing work, God, in in my heart, in the hearts of each person here. Father, uh, if someone doesn't know you by faith, God, would you draw them today? For those of us who do, God, would you gently reveal and expose our priorities that are off and our mismotives and how we functionally don't live as if you are God. And Father, for all of that, thank you for this table That's a promise of your grace. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.